This is Amy Cohen Epstein, founder and executive director of the 20 plus year old nonprofit organization, the Lynn Cohen Foundation, and the SEAM, the series for education and awareness in medicine. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing female founders, entrepreneurs, scientists, doctors, researchers to talk about women's health, wellness, and preventive care. Take a listen. I've done a lot of these and this is like, I'm a little starstruck. This is really cool. And I have a hundred questions and actually leading up to this podcast, I told a lot of people that I'm interviewing you and they're extremely jealous and asked me questions to ask you. So I don't know if I'll get to them, but, um, but I'm just going to jump right in. So Dr. Linda Kahn is an assistant professor in the Division of Environmental Pediatrics at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Your research interests span really of three interrelated areas, uh, the role of preconception and prenatal environmental exposures in pregnancy and postpartum maternal health, predictors of male and female reproductive development and fertility, and health outcomes of assisted reproduction in both women and children. You received your MPH in population and family health and your PhD in epidemiology from Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. Now, when I first started really learning about you, and I've actually read a lot of stuff that you've done, and Dr. Linda Roman, who I, excuse me, Dr. Linda Roman, and Dr. Julia Smith at NYU, who I know really well, who's in women's oncology, has talked about you and mentioned you before, and I've read, read about you. One of the things that I I couldn't put together was the pediatrics and the epidemiology until I sort of really started to look into your research. And so what I, the first question I just want to ask before you just dive in, and I'm really just going to shut up because clearly I'm starstruck and tongue-tied, is which came first? And then how did those come together? Or is that just because I'm not as smart as you and don't see the natural fit or is that just what happens and those you work together and sort of those two incredible areas are seemingly okay obviously obvious or not well actually my career trajectory is completely unconventional because I had a 20-year career as a book editor before I went into public health um I was a a pre-med in college and then I got cold feet about going to medical school. And instead I I had double majored in English and biochemistry. And so I decided to go the English track and become a book editor. And so I, but because I had this scientific literacy I ended up being assigned a lot of health books. And that was fine by me because I could talk to the doctors and understand what they were saying. And so I developed a specialty in women's health um, being a good second wave feminist. And so uh, I did that for two decades before, um, and my kids were growing up and it was great. It was a very flexible career. And then I decided when they were in school full-time that I really wanted to go back to science. And that point, medical school wasn't really an option, but then I discovered public health and I thought, this is so cool. I really want to to learn more about this. And so I went and got this MPH in population and family health because of my interest in women's health and reproductive health. And uh, my focus was really on uh, fertility 
Um, and uh, in particular, I wanted to learn more about health effects of assisted reproduction. Um, and then I just ended up getting apprenticed to a faculty member who had a strong interest in environmental chemicals. I had never really focused on them at all. But the more I learned about them, uh, the more I realized that they are hugely important because a lot of them have endocrine disrupting properties. And obviously the reproductive system is controlled by hormones. Um, and so a lot of the health effects that they can have affect uh, fertility and reproduction. So then I did my doctorate in epidemiology because I'm a data nerd. And um, epidemiologists just basically, you know, you know, we deal with a lot of data and study design. Um, and then it's it's actually um, funny you ask about me being in the Department of Pediatrics because it's actually completely has nothing to do with what I do. <laughs> I don't study children at all, <laughs> but I ended up here because NYU's Division of Environmental Pediatrics is a research division within the Department of Pediatrics that runs a huge cohort study. So what we do is we enroll women in the first trimester of pregnancy we get biospecimens, you know, blood, urine, saliva, hair, nail, all this stuff. During three trimesters of pregnancy, we get, um, uh, have the women do questionnaires. When their babies are born, we take cord blood, we take placenta samples, and then we follow the women and their children longitudinally. And the oldest kids in our cohort now are, um, are just turning six. And we have almost 4,000 participants in our cohort, and we're still enrolling. But that um, is pediatrics. Well, what's so interesting, yes, the, the study is funded to look at the prenatal chemical exposures. So we measure chemicals in these biosamples that we collected in each trimester, and then the child health outcomes. But just as part of the study, we're also getting all this data on the, on the moms. Right. And so my PI, the, the guy who runs the study, Dr. Trasande, um, so we have all this data on the moms, and you're interested in women's health. Why don't you look at the women's health side of things because it's just, you know, it's, it's sitting around here. So I, as a women's and reproductive health um, expert came in to the department of pediatrics. So that's, that's how I ended up there. And just being an epidemiologist in any department means that you are um, someone who focuses on uh, designing studies and analyzing data. And so you can have epidemiologists in any department in cardiovascular, you know, any yeah. department in, in a hospital can have an epidemiologist if they do uh, clinical research. Don't you think when you came in with that angle and that lens and then that long-term, like that, you know, that overview and being able to, even if you don't use it on a day-to-day -day basis, I guess having access to it or being able to tap in, seeing that, dat that data starting, you know, when the women are pregnant and in utero and then seeing it all the way through, doesn't that just give you the most fullest picture that you could have? It could be even fuller because what we are learning is that uh, exposures preconceptionally. Yeah, that's my next question. Actually, are really important, and we are just beginning to be able to. We're just beginning to collect that to start to enroll people before they actually conceive, uh, because what we're learning is that preconception exposure affects the quality of the gametes, the egg and the sperm, which eventually. Uh, you know, become the embryo that becomes the fetus, that becomes the child, but also can affect the the, the pregnancy itself. Um, 
So this it's that's why I would call what I do life course epidemiology because it starts at the beginning of the beginning and it goes all the way through your life. Something that we have learned um, over the past probably 40 years is that exposures can have long-term really distal effects. Back in the most of the 20th century, people thought, okay, you're exposed to something, we expect to see the outcome in a matter of days, weeks, months, you know, maybe 10 years, you know, whatever. People didn't think that you could be exposed in utero and have that affect your health decades later. Yeah. There started to be hints. There started to be hints. First was with the DES catastrophe. So I don't know if you're aware of diethylstilbestros. No. It's a chemical. It's a, a synthetic estrogen that was prescribed to pregnant women during the middle part of the 20th century. In the 70s, right? Yeah, well, 50s, 60s, 70s, yeah. 50s, 60s. Yes, and in fact, I am aware of it, and my mom was prescribed it. Ah. And well, there was, my dad to this day believes that's why she died of ovarian cancer. It very well could be, but what's what we also learned, what was really the red flag about DES was in the children, and particularly it was in the daughters. So these women were prescribed it uh, to prevent um, nausea and morning sickness and miscarriage. So this, and it turns out it actually didn't really necessarily have an effect, but everybody thought it did, so it was being dispensed liberally. And um, the children started to, and what happened, the first thing that was the, the first sign was that a doctor, just a single doctor, noticed a case of um, vaginal carcinoma, car uh, cancer of the, of the vagina, in, a, I think she was 13 years old. This never happens. This is like really unusual. This is not a cancer that you see. It's a very rare cancer period, never in children. Oh my God. So raised a red flag. And so he started to look for other studies. It turns out there, there was a, a small number that he could identify of, of young women, girls really, who had been diagnosed with this. What did they all have in common? Their moms had been prescribed DES. So that was the first sign that a prenatal exposure could wow. have an effect on a person years later. 14 years later. Right. So that was there. That was that was the first sign of, of um, the fact that, you know, exposure outcome can be separated by a long period of time and that the prenatal period is really a critical period. Something's going on in utero. These systems are developing. And if you mess with them in utero, they can program disease later in life. Um, the other thing that happened was in the early 80s, a doctor named David Barker in England showed a correlation between children who'd been born low birth weight yeah. in the depression and rates of cardiovascular disease literally like 60 years later. Actually, it wasn't 60 years later, it's 50 years later. So this was very unusual. Like you could, there was there was an ecological study. It wasn't following individual people, but he was saying, okay, in parts of England which had a lot of uh, economic hardship and there was a lot of, of of low birth weight babies being born, fifty years later we're seeing those regions have really high rates of cardiovascular disease. What's going on here? And so he formulated this hypothesis called the Barker hypothesis or the fetal origins hypothesis, which is saying that this. Again, this prenatal period is really critical. And that you, in his um, 
his analysis, he was looking particularly at nutrition and he was speculating that low nutrition during pregnancy had programmed these fetuses to be very conservative metabolically. Hmm. So when they were born, they were expecting starvation, you know, because uh, they, they'd been deprived of nutrients in utero. And then what happens later on in their life, depression was over, plenty of food, people ate normal amounts, but they had this thrifty phenotype. Mm. So their metabolism essentially predisposed them to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all these other metabolic problems. And so again, it's like this idea that something in utero can affect your adult health. That's life course epidemiology, really looking at, and that's what we do in, in environmental health as well. We really try to focus on what are these critical periods of exposure and uh, look for outcomes, not just, you know, at the time of exposure, like in a, you know, a, a chemical plant accident, right? That happens, you're going to see immediate outcomes. Right. But it's like, so oftentimes it's low level exposures, but at critical periods that can have long-term health consequences. Children, children are so vulnerable and fetuses even more so, right? Because the systems are all developing and a little bit of exposure in a tiny, tiny, tiny little either, you know, fetus or child, you know, children are, 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 are a lot of surface area, for example, for per volume, right? So if they're, they're exposed to something on their skin, for example, they're going to get a lot more into them right. than you I will. And what about that pre, what about like a, what a mom does before she gets pregnant? Like, what about this idea? Like, you know, you sort of do whatever you want until, you know, the day you find out you get pregnant, which by the way, is you could be pregnant for weeks before that. And then you're, you're, you're clean, whatever that means per person. You know, what, what's that theory about? And what do women, what can you say to a woman who comes to you and says, I'm good now? Right. I mean, not to make people nuts, but you know, you have all the eggs you're ever going to have by the time you're born. So essentially anything you've ever done in your entire life is going to potentially affect those eggs. It's, men have a little more leeway because <laughs> sperm are constantly being produced, <clears throat> but the cells that produce the sperm have been around since they were born too. Right. Um, but yeah, the truth of the matter is it's your whole lifetime is affecting the quality of your eggs. Um, so you can't just change on a dime. Certainly doesn't hurt to stop smoking or drinking or doing you know what we know to be adverse behaviors when yeah. you're pregnant but even better to do it uh before you become pregnant you know and, and and you know big one is obesity um you know it's it's really an epidemic in our country and now more and more just in our in our world yeah. And we know that that's not good. Uh, it really increases your risk of so many different conditions and increases you know, oxidative stress, which can really disrupt, um, uh, can, can contribute to a lot of pregnancy complications. Um, so yeah, it's the, the healthier you can be, the sooner, the better. Absolutely. So let me, let's um, just pivot a teeny bit, which is, so we know what we can control. And I've talked about that a lot. And obviously this, this entire conversation is about preventive care in the, you know, fullest sense of the topic, but what about those things that we can't, or we can, but, you know, as individuals living our lives that aren't involved in that industry in terms of sort of environmentally what's out there and some of the, the work that you've done in, what's in our water and what's, you know, what's in the environment that's out there that, you know, is seeping into our bodies that has potentially a lifelong 
affect? You know, what is that? What do we do? How do we help? How do we fix it? You know, how do we live our life knowing that, you know, we've ingested things that are going to stick with us forever? Or I, you know, just cooked eggs that, you know, my pan is giving off disgusting toxins that you know I've given to my children not unknowingly even though I'm the guilt the guilt the guilt guilt. I think I'm you know Santa Monica I think I'm buying the best you know BPA free free everything but I'm sure there's something in there what do you know what do we do and how do we take as I say take control of our health and wellness and and be proactive and knowledgeable yeah well and the first thing is not to not to not to beat yourself up um because I think the stress of doing that actually is probably worse than a lot of these chemicals, right? So <laughs> there's got to be a reasonable balance. We're, we don't live, you know, in a cave in the middle of nowhere. We all live in society and there's just unavoidable things that we're going to be exposed to. It's a fact of life. Um, you, you, I would say do what you can, you know, and do what you can afford. Um, but certain things it is probably best practices to try to avoid. Um, for example, we know a lot of, um, there's a lot of evidence that phthalates, which is a class of chemicals that are used uh, in fragranced products, hmm. are highly endocrine disrupting. So if you have a choice between, say, a fragranced laundry detergent or an unfragranced laundry detergent, pick the unfragranced. Simple okay. things like that. You know, don't use those air plug in air fresheners that spew all kind of fragrance into your home. You know, it's, it's just look on the packaging of your personal care products and try to choose things that don't have added fragrances. Like that's a very simple thing that you can do. Um, in terms of organic food, you know, there's the, um, I think the entire environmental working group has a great, I mean, that's just a phenomenal resource, but in general, but they have a list of the dirty dozens. So if you're, you can't afford to buy a hundred percent of your produce, organic because it is expensive focus on these particular ones because they're the most highly contaminated things like strawberries um so uh in terms of plastics obviously look for your bpa free plastics sadly the manufacturers have mostly just replaced bpa with bps which they can still say it's bpa free but bps we now are discovering is just as bad so Ideally, just use metal metal water containers if you can, or metal food containers, or glass food containers. Even better, if you do use a plastic container, don't microwave it. Right. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of common sense stuff can go a long, long way. Uh, you know, just minimize the number of of personal care products that you use if possible. Um, and what about and, things like what's in our water that you've recently read? About? What's in your water? Some regions do have contaminated water. Obviously, we've heard a lot in the news about lead. Yeah. You know, it, it, certainly you have to be very careful if you live in one those areas to try to avoid consuming the water. A lot of this country has water contaminated by PFAS. These are the forever chemicals that are also in Teflon and um, all kinds of nonstick, non-stain products. Uh, and um, places where with contaminated water supplies tend to be nearby um, places where those chemicals were or are produced. Um, So a lot of plants, uh, Teflon plants, um, the DuPont plants down in the Carolinas that produced all that um, stuff that goes into non-stick carpet, uh, non-stained carpets. Um, I think 3M plants did contaminate a lot of water in the upper Midwest. 
those regions, people are aware of it. Um, and they have, the, the, really the only way to take it out of your water is a, is a system that they install into your, into your basement, basically your water to, to filter the water. A, a Brita doesn't, won't do it. Um, for the rest of us who don't have contaminated water, again, it's about trying to just avoid the exposures, you know, better not to use nonstick coated surfaces on your pans, or if you use them, just try to, don't use them if they get scratched. Um, try to use wax dental floss instead of the, <laughs> the other kind because that's coated in BFOS. Um, unfortunately, it's not labeled. So PFAS is in a lot of our products, uh, personal care products that we're not aware of. Um, pretty much slippery stuff and nonstick stuff. Wow. Are your children like experts on this? No, 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 they're not. They're experts on reproductive health. We talk <laughs> a lot about, we talk a lot about sperm at the dinner table. <laughs> I'm interested in that because I think it's, um, I, I think that there's, I think it's a hard conversation um, in general. And then I actually think, I think there's, there's so many barriers that have been broken down amongst, about, amongst women and about talking about reproductive health and about talking about healthily, how, how to health, healthily have, you know, those conversations and about, you know, what to do, what to say and how to be healthy while, trying to conceive why, you know, that talking about miscarriage now, you know, which was something women didn't talk about before. It was, you know, very shameful. And, and I think reproductive health is, you know, incredibly important. I think talking about our ovaries is important. I think talking about our fallopian tubes, all these things is what I talk about. It's my everyday conversations. Um, but what do you talk about and what do they talk about? I, I think it's fascinating. I mean, you've college age children. So I think it's. Oh, I started talking about it long before they were college age. <laughs> I used to embarrass them in front of all their friends, but yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I mean, I, I just have always been very, very open about it. Um, it's super important and the, and um, I think it has to be normalized. It's part of their everyday health, right? So they have to be thinking about it and certainly denying that your kids have sexual impulses or that they're going to have sexual experiences is putting your head in the sand and so better yeah. to be open about it and talk to them about it so that they're prepared i remember talking to they did an ad campaign in, in this in new york where they had ads on the on the bus shelters for dual protection meaning you uh, two kinds of birth control so you use uh, right. oral contraceptives plus a condom Right? Okay. Have both because the oral contraceptives are not going to prevent sexually transmitted infections. Right. Right. Prevent pregnancy and the infection are two separate things. And I think my son was like ten or eleven when this campaign was running. And I'm walking down the streets and I I pointed out. I said, "Do you know what that means, Ellie?" <laughs> He's like, "When you start having sex, <laughs> you should always be like, oh my god, no <laughs> protection." I mean. <laughs> my kids know me but they were about. but I mean everybody around me was like and also my kids are tiny like not like your giant son my children well were they like, weren't and my kids are late growers so when they were they're 10 12 they're very small too yeah my mine have never grown and so he attended, <laughs> like he was seven maybe so people really thought it was weird that I was talking to him about this yeah stuff. 
yeah. I just, I just have always been very open about it, and it has served me well. I think you know they they talk to me about things. They no, me about totally. those calls. My girls certainly any kind of menstrual irregularities. We talk about it because it's really important. I have a, a my our middle child. She's a ballet dancer, mm. and that's really, really. Um, it messes with your menstrual cycle. Totally, totally, yeah. totally. I mean, she's. Uh, this is hip violation, whatever. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, she's not going to show. Um, yeah. it's, it's a secondary uh, amenorrhea. So basically, she got her period and then stopped. Yeah. For a long, long, long time. I mean, that's something you need to take. You have to pay attention to. You can't say, oh yeah, whatever. She's a dancer. They don't get their periods. Like I need uh-huh. to make sure they have hormone imbalance. These are things that, that I think, um, you know, it's a it's health. Reproductive health is health. The fact that we, you know, it just drives me nuts that women have to go to two separate doctors, right? Why is this that our GPs, our regular PC, you know, primary care physicians won't touch our reproductive organs? <laughs> it's like, it, they've been so siloed and so segregated and so, so like, ooh, that's not my realm. I don't know anything about that. Well, you should know something about it because it's not like it exists in some separate compartment of our body. It's all connected. Well, also, why doesn't your why why doesn't your gynecologist just give you a full exam? Vice versa, exactly the same thing. And what drives me really crazy because my current research is on um, pregnancy complications, particularly hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, like preeclampsia, and their connection with cardiovascular disease. And it turns out that women who have preeclampsia are two to five times more likely to die of cardiovascular disease wow. than women who don't. And yet, and yet, does your primary care physician, I've been to many because of insurance changes over the years, I've been to so many doctors, not a single one of my internists has ever asked me about my reproductive history. They're taking my blood pressure, right? They're measuring my cholesterol. They think that they're screening me for cardiovascular disease. And they're not asking me about something that is so highly predictive of cardiovascular disease. Well, I can tell you the number of women that have told me that their doctors and these, I've talked to many women who don't live in New York and Los Angeles. So let's put it that, you know, that out there, Mm -hmm. those doctors really didn't either know or tell them that their, um, their annual pap smear doesn't tell them if doesn't screen them for ovarian cancer that it's has nothing to do with ovarian cancer. They think they came, thought that it was a screening for ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. No, no idea whatsoever. No. Whatsoever. And the other thing that's, that people don't really understand is a lot of people think that mammograms somehow prevent breast cancer. That oh, many get, do. If they get a regular mammogram, they're preventing breast cancer. Mammograms are not a preventive no they're a screening tool screening tool it's completely different right so there's a lot of shock like how could i have breast cancer i've been having regular mammograms and by the way you might have dense breasts and a mammogram is basically doing not much of anything you have to have a a sonogram at the same you might have to have a sonogram and you might have to have an mri which your doctor might never have told you so i mean the list is long and i think i i am in awe of your work i have i have to say I am a complete lay person, but I do know more than most just because for the last 25 years, I've done so much in the world of breast and gynecologic oncology and know so many of the most 
incredible people in that field and so smart and so just amazing on top of just brilliant, just these incredible gynecologists and oncologists and of genetic counselors and all these incredible people, many of whom are at NYU and, and SC in LA and all over. But I have to say the most fascinating are the epidemiologists and a couple epidemiologists oncologists who do these, it, like you, just these, this work that spans this, you know, long term and the looking from, you know, one side to the other and watching it grow and the data. And just, I think this idea of like digging in, I just picture this, like a beautiful mind of numbers and, you know, just like, like incredible whiteboard of data. And it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to then see you, you know, spew it out in this beautiful way. And I, and I do, I do now understand that first part of your career and how I don't think it, to me, it makes perfect sense. I think- I feel being, glad because to me it does too, but a lot of people are like, what? No, I think it makes perfect <laughs> sense. And being, having, being pre-med and then, you know, editing books that are, have, were based in this, you know, scientific field, whatever, you know, I'm sure there were, they, you know, were, I'm sure that they were not all one subject, but, you know, all in that realm. And then going back and publishing work and the research, I think, clearly you write in a way that people can understand in the field and outside the field. I think there's something really to be said for that and to be able to speak about it in a way that, you know, that some, that people can understand who aren't in your, you know, aren't scientists, I think is pretty amazing. Cause that also for a lot of people I've met, um, it's hard to understand <laughs> some of them, um, you know, who, who don't, aren't able to relay the work they do in a way that so many people can understand and and grasp, and then I'd be able to ask more questions. The only other thing I wanted to ask was, um, where do you see this, like, where do you see moving forward in the future in the terms of your research? Like, what would you like to do and, and keep doing that you think you can make the greatest impact? That's hard to say. Well, I'm very, very interested in um, putting my research into action. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel as an epidemiologist that I have access to all these data, um, but if the results of the studies stay within the academic community, it's not doing any, anybody any good. Um, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why the, the paper that uh, I think originally you responded to, the, the one yeah. that was published on, on these forever chemicals, PFAS, and the economic cost. Yeah exposure to PFAS. So basically we did this analysis where we looked at um, what we know PFAS to be associated with, which health conditions we know. Um, there's a lot of certainty that they're associated with. Some of the other ones, we don't have enough data yet, but it's looking pretty likely. And the list includes uh, adult obesity, child obesity, several different kinds of cancer, um, uh, low birth weight, um, endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, whole bunch of different endocrinologic diseases because they're endocrine disruptors. And so what's the price tag, right? Infertility is on there too, right? What's yeah. the price tag? How much is this costing society? Because a lot of times policymakers are like, oh yeah, well, we know PFAS are all over, you know, and they're contaminating people's water systems, but it's like so expensive to go and clean all these water systems and remediate and blah, 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 blah. And, 
you know, compared to the alternative. <laughs> this is the thing. I don't think they know the alternative. I don't think they know what it's costing on the other side, right? They're only thinking about the cost of remediation. It's like, well, if you don't remediate, let me let's tell you how much this is costing. How much is costing yeah. in terms of healthcare costs? How much is costing in terms of lost productivity? How much is costing for those kids that are born low birth weight in terms of IQ points, which is long-term earning potential, which has a dollar amount associated with it, right? So I think the you know, trying to translate the research that I do, whether it's in, you know, in terms of the environmental chemical exposure, whether it's in terms of women's cardiovascular disease risk, whatever it is, trying to translate it into, um, into language um, and um, uh, sort of uh, outcomes that matter to people. I think you should work with an economist. I think it, teaming up with an economist. Really, really, yeah. I, I think that would be fascinating. Absolutely fascinating, and not and and making it practical for people. Um, because the long term disease. I mean, the long term, you know, probability of disease, and then what that costs, and the you know, in, in hospital system and medication, and it's like when your insurance company won't pay for physical therapy. But yet, if you don't do physical therapy, your chances of ending up in surgery are, you know, up by 90%. It doesn't make any sense. It just literally doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to a rational person. So, right. Right. And none of this is, is counting the, the cost, which you can't put a price tag on, on the stress, on the, on the, uh, you know, the, the, the sacrifices that you have to make if you have health conditions. Right. And um, sadly, we don't live in a, society with universal health care so this is all coming out of everybody's pockets um, yeah. and it's a huge source of strain for americans um and and for women in particular you know i mean this is just a lot of this is burdening women uh, in terms of these health outcomes it's just a lot you know my focus has been on women's reproductive health but we're, we just happen to be seeing a lot of associations with uh, conditions that we know are really debilitating um, uh, both physically, things like endometriosis, and psychologically, like infertility. Um, and I think that we we you can't always put a price tag on that. Um, but there, but and and people suffer in silence. We don't hear about it a lot of the time. Uh, we need to, as you say, with miscarriage, like we need to destigmatize a lot of these conditions and talk about them because they affect you know we're half the population.